Okay, deal. We'll do that. It is good fellowship. Now let's fellowship in the Word together. Uh, we're continuing our walk through uh, the Gospel of John, and today we are going to be in John 15, verses 1 through 17. So get your Bible out and turn to John 15, or if you use a device, some way to look at the Word of Christ this morning. I did make a, uh, a slide presentation this morning, so you just know, it's, actually it's more than one slide. It actually is not just one slide, it encompasses many slides, which I think will both entertain and inform you. All right, so let's look at John 15, 1 through 17 together. Apostle, Apostle writes, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch of me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. I forgot to dismiss the kids. You told me to do that, and I totally forgot, but they left on their own anyway. Man, I'm so sorry. Gosh. Back to the word, I apologize. Abide in me, and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. This is the word of the Lord. May he be glorified at the reading of his word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you and thank you for this opportunity to come together to fellowship with one another and to sit under the teaching of your word. And Lord, we come confessing the authority of your word that it speaks into our existence, it speaks into our life, we do not speak into it. So Father, I pray that we would listen this morning. I pray that you would give us attentive ears and attentive hearts, Lord, that are eager to hear what you have to say, and Lord, that you would shape us and mold us according to your word, that you would deepen our faith, our trust, and our dependence upon Jesus Christ, and Lord, that we might leave this place better equipped to proclaim the greatness and the glory of the gospel of Jesus. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen. As we come to our text uh, this morning, it's good for us to keep in mind, again, the context of where we are in the Gospel of John. Um, in, the, in John chapter 12, G, uh, John wrapped up the public ministry of Jesus Christ so that everything we've been reading for the past few weeks, chapter 13 up through chapter 17, Jesus is focusing really exclusively on his closest disciples. In fact, we can even pick up a transition in chapter 13, verse 31, where Judas departs and Jesus gets really focused on his closest disciples. And really from 1331 on through the end of chapter 17, Jesus is preparing his disciples for his coming death. And what we see in these chapters is we see a lot of repeated themes coming back up again as Jesus is preparing his disciples for that traumatic event. I mean, we, we can't underestimate what it, it, it means for them as they see their teacher, their Lord, their master hanging upon a cross and, and the feeling of defeat that is going to come over them. And so Christ lovingly is preparing them for that coming event. In our passage today, Jesus uses a very vivid illustration, again, that touches on some themes that we've already gone over to impress upon his disciples the importance of their continued relationship to him. As we look at this passage, Jesus uses a combination of commands and conditional statements that clearly communicate the necessity of abiding in him. 
Now, I don't know if you were listening when I read. I hope you were, or at least reading along, but there was a word that was repeated several times, right? Any idea what that word was? Abide. Abide is a very important word for John. In fact, that word abide is used 118 times in the New Testament. 68 of those times, it comes from the pen of John. 11 times it shows up in these verses. So I just read 16 verses, 17 verses, and 11 times John uses the word abide. He is trying to communicate something to us. Rather, Christ is trying to communicate something to us, and that is it is necessary that his followers abide in him. In fact, it's almost as if I don't really need to say too much because the Scripture speaks so clearly. It is necessary for the followers of Christ to abide in him. And so as we look at this text this morning, there's three points that I want us to consider as we look at it. Uh, the first is the necessity of abiding in Christ. Looking at the first, ver- first eight verses, I want us to see the necessity of abiding in Jesus. Secondly, I want us to consider how is it that we abide in Christ. It's one thing to tell you that you need to do something, right? It's another thing to know how to do that. And so we want to look at how Christ tells us to abide in him. And then lastly, I want us to consider the hope we have of abiding in Jesus. So the necessity of abiding in Christ, how we abide in Christ, and the hope we have of abiding in Christ. So let's look at that first point, the necessity of abiding in Christ. So the way that Jesus chooses to communicate this point to his disciples is through this vivid illustration of a vine and branches. Right now, Jesus is not unique in this illustration. We see it show up all over kind of uh, the scriptures, but also in other religions, this idea of a vine and branches. And certainly, given the agricultural context that Jesus and his followers are living in, this illustration speaks very clearly to his disciples, and it proves to be a very effective teaching tool. In verse 1, Jesus introduces himself or presents himself as the true vine. And his, va- and his father as the vine dresser. Now, for Jesus to introduce himself as the true vine is no small matter, and we don't want to overlook this here in John's gospel. In several places throughout the Old Testament, this imagery of a vine is used to, to refer to or to speak of Israel, the nation of Israel. But every time it's used in the Old Testament in reference to Israel, It's spoken of in reference to their inability or their unwillingness to produce good fruit. And so God, throughout the Old Testament, he speaks of Israel as a vine, but not as a vine that brings forth good and useful fruit, but as a vine that fails again and again to produce good fruit. Consider what the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. It says, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile, fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it and looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedges, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that no rain rain upon it, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is a house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. And so Isaiah is speaking this prophecy of judgment upon the nation of Israel because they were supposed to produce good fruit. They were God's chosen nation, and they were supposed to represent him and make him known to the nations around them. But every time God comes to his vineyard looking for fresh and good grapes, he finds only wild grapes. He finds only uh, useless fruit. But contrary to Israel stands Jesus, the true vine, the genuine vine, the vine that does not fail to produce good fruit. And so what Christ is doing here by saying, I am the true vine, is he is declaring that he is the real and true nation. He is the real and true people of God. He has supplanted and superseded Israel, the nation. He has succeeded where they have failed. And really, this is a motif that we see throughout the scriptures, 
that Jesus, in his revelation, in his incarnation, he is the true and better Israel. He is the true and better Moses. He is the true and better Joshua. He brings a true and better covenant. And so when Christ says, I am the true vine, he is a vine that did not fail. He is a vine that succeeded where Israel failed. He is a vine that produces good fruit. As a vine dresser, the father is the one who tends the vine by removing or pruning branches. Those that fail to bear fruit are removed, while those that do bear good fruit are pruned in order to produce more fruit. And then in verse 3, Jesus connects this kind of ambiguous illustration to his disciples. So in verse 3, Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. Um, I made my kids memorize this passage. So this was one of our family memorized scriptures. We memorized one through eight together. And if you try to memorize it, it's really cool because it's very rhythmic, actually, as you go through it. But every time we got to verse three, I was kind of like, what exactly? How does this fit within what Jesus is saying, right? So in verse one and two, we've got this illustration of a vine and branches, and Jesus is the true vine, and the Father is the vine dresser. And it doesn't take a lot of figuring out to say that the branches are the disciples, right? We can kind of piece this all together. But then verse 3, it just says, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Well, what's happening behind the scenes here is that there's a play on words taking place. So the word clean in verse 3 is actually the same root word as the word prune in verse 2. In fact, prune is the verb form and clean is the adjective form, but they share the same root. And the word means clean or cleanliness, And so what Jesus is actually speaking to his disciples is a word of encouragement. He is saying to them, you are already clean. You are already fit to bear fruit and fit to be pruned by the Father. So it's a word of encouragement to them. Lest they think themselves branches that are being cut off or kind of unsure about their place in this this little parable that Jesus is giving, Jesus speaks words of encouragement says, already you're clean. Already you're fit to be pruned by the Father, fit to bear fruit. Now, this idea of cleanliness should take our minds back to John chapter 13, right? Because we go back to John chapter 13, what takes place in John 13? Jesus washes the feet of his disciples, right? And so in John chapter 13, if we remember the scene, the disciples are gathered in the upper room. They're having their supper, and, and Christ, uh, he takes off his outer garment. He wraps a towel around his waist, and he begins to wash the feet of his disciples, right? A lowly task, really a disgusting task. I mean, their feet are wearing sandals, and they're stepping in all kinds of stuff that you just don't want to step in, right? And so Jesus is down on the, feet, on the ground. He's washing their feet, and what does Peter say? Peter says, no, you're, not, you're, you're never washing my feet, right? I love that because the assumption is that every other disciple was cool with it. Like, everybody else is like, oh, that's all right. that, this, this makes sense. All right, wash my feet. But Peter's like, no. He literally says, you are never going to wash my feet. This is not something you do, Jesus. And what's Jesus' reply? He says, Peter, unless I wash you, you have no part in me. So Peter being who Peter is, what does he say? He says, well, then forget it. Not just my feet. Let's take a bath. Like, give me a bath. Like, if washing, you washing me is part of me being with you, then I I want head to toe cleansing. Just wash all of me, Jesus. And Jesus looks at me and says, Peter, (laughs) slow down, Pete, right? I love Peter. I I hope you love Peter. He's like always like, he is just gung-ho right? He's just out there. So he says, slow down, Peter. He says, those who are clean only need to have their feet washed. And, he says to Peter, and you are clean. Now, we know that Jesus isn't talking about Peter's external filthiness, right? He's not saying to Peter, I only need to wash your feet because you did a good job of washing every part of you. He's talking about an internal reality, right? And we know this because the cleanliness of Peter in that very same passage is contrasted with the uncleanliness of Judas. Because Jesus says, you are clean, but not all of you. And John gives us this commentary which says he was speaking of Judas who was about to betray him. And so when Jesus looks at him and says, you are clean, this isn't some external reality he's speaking of. He's talking about an internal reality. He's talking about a cleansing of their heart. He's talking about the promises made in Ezekiel chapter 37 where God says, I will put a new heart within you and I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk into my ways and I will cause you to to do as I have commanded you to do. And Jesus is speaking this new covenant reality and saying, Peter, you're clean. Internally, I've washed you. Internally, I've cleansed you. Internally, I've given you a new heart. You are already clean 
he says to his disciples. And this cleanliness, how does it come about? Jesus says, you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Right now, when we hear the word that I've spoken to you, Jesus isn't talking about some secret message which he delivered to them, right? Not a single, there's no single word, but when he says the word that I've spoken to you, Jesus is speaking comprehensively of the gospel message that he has delivered to them. Jesus has been teaching them for the past two and a half, three years, walking with them, communicating them the gospel, telling them who he is, who the Father is, how they come to the Father through him. And Jesus says, because of the word that I've spoken to you, you are clean. Well, what's the connection there, right? What's the connection between this word spoken, the teaching of Jesus, and the cleanliness of Peter and the fellow disciples? Well, it has to be their reaction or their response to that word, right? That's, that's the bridge to their cleanliness. It's not like Jesus teaches and they're boom clean. No, they have responded to the teaching of Jesus with faith, with belief, with trust. Remember that passage, um, I don't know exactly where it is in the Bible, and that's probably not a really good thing for a guy preaching to say. So we're going to forget I said it. I know exactly where it is, and you can ask me afterwards. But, but uh, Jesus, I think it might even be John chapter 6, where Jesus says, unless you eat me and drink me, you have no part in me, and a bunch of people desert him at that point, which <laughs> kind of makes sense, right? That's a, pretty, that's a pretty tough statement. And Jesus, it might not be John 6, but Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, do you want to leave me as well? And what does Peter say? He says, where else are we going to go? You have the words of life. You see, the connection between the word that Christ has spoken and the cleanliness of his followers is their faith in his word. They believed what Jesus said. Contrary Judas, who didn't? He walked with Christ. He heard Christ. He saw the miracles of Christ. And yet none of it was met by faith in his heart. And so despite his proximity to Christ, he was not clean. So Jesus says to the disciples, already you are clean, already you are fit to bear fruit, already you are fit to be pruned by my Father. And so now those who are clean have a responsibility to abide in Christ. Look at verse 4, abide in me. And I in you. That word abide, it's, it's an imperative. It's a command. Jesus is looking at him saying, you're clean. You've responded to my teaching of faith. Now you must abide in me. But it's not just you abide in me. There's a mutual indwelling, right? Because Jesus says, as I abide in you. And this isn't the first time that we've heard this <coughs> kind of talk, right? This idea of mutual indwelling. In fact, if we go back to chapter 14 and verse 20, Jesus speaks of you and me and I and you. And it gets really kind of like Russian dollish where he's like the Father is in me and I am in the Father and you're in me and I am in you. And what, what John paints, or what Christ paints better, is this, this picture of this deep mutual indwelling that takes place as people come to faith in Christ. And it's mediated, as we learned last week, through the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so Jesus commands his followers, you are clean, but now you must abide in me. And the necessity of abiding in Jesus is made clear in the second half of verse 4. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. This is not a suggestion. This is a necessary reality. That the disciples abide in Jesus. Just as a branch, if it's separated from a vine, falls to the ground and withers and dies, so will the disciples if they separate themselves from Christ. It's absolutely necessary that they abide in Jesus. Going back to verses 1 and 2, the opening illustration here, if the disciples wish to be branches that bear fruit and are pruned by the Father to bear more fruit, then they must abide in Jesus. Jesus. Just as a branch draws life and vitality from the vine, so too do the disciples draw life and vitality only by abiding in Jesus Christ. Remember John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is life and no one else. Now, John does a very good job in his writing, especially if you read 1 John, of, of kind of completely cutting out the middleman right? And, and we're uncomfortable with that. I mean, raise your hand if any of you have ever read 1 John and, and felt a tinge of uncomfortableness in you. Am I all by myself here? Thank you, Peter. I appreciate that. 
All right? We read it, and John's like, if you say you have, uh, if you say I have fellowship with him and you walk in the darkness, you're not with him. If you say you have no sin, you're a liar, and, you're, and the truth is not in you. Right? John paints a black and white world because it really literally is only a black and white world. We hate that because we want to exist in the gray. Right? We, we want to exist in the middle where we feel comfortable in our behavior, right? And, and not too uncomfortable that we want to change it immediately, right? We kind of want to exist in, in a, with a foot in both camps, so to speak. Uh, where, I, where I grew up down in North Carolina, there's a, a, a park called Carowinds. <coughs> it's an amusement park, and it straddles the border between North Carolina and South Carolina. So one of the coolest things to do where I'm from is to go put one foot in one state and one foot in the other, because what else is there to do besides that, right? But that's how we want to exist sometimes. We want to exist with one foot in Christ and one foot in the world. And John's like, that doesn't work. And he does the same thing here. There's only one vine. There's not two vines. There's not two options. You're either in the vine or not in the vine. You either have life or don't have life. There's no middle ground here. Unless you are in the vine, you have no life. And John emphasizes that in verses 5 through 8, where Jesus becomes far more explicit, and he presents these stark contrasts that just emphasize the reality even more for us. Look at verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. I love that right there, because how many times have we read through the New Testament and the disciples get confused at what Jesus says? Right? There's often times where, where that happens, where he'll tell a parable, and it's like you get this picture of them all just kind of like scratching their head. And going like, what exactly are you saying? And so I feel like some of what Jesus is doing here is being so explicit so that there's no confusion, right? Lest they get things confused. I'm the vine, you are the branches. And then he presents two realities in, ver- in the second half of verse 5 and verse 6. He says, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. He's, he's become so explicit in the necessity of abiding in him. Apart from me, you can accomplish nothing. Now, we need to wrestle with that for just a second, right? Because for Jesus to say you can do nothing, that's, that's how, how do we understand nothing, right? I mean, obviously, I can get up and, and walk and, and breathe and eat. You know, is, 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 you know, I can do those things, right? Lost people do them every day. People who have no relationship with Christ do these things. So what does Jesus mean when he says you can do nothing? Well, what he means is you can do nothing of eternal importance. You can do nothing that has an eternal, an eternal value to it in me. The only way to bear fruit, and fruit is eternally valuable, is to be in Christ Jesus. And then in verse 6, he contrasts it with those who are not. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. And so contrary to having life, vitality, and fruit, if anyone does not abide in Christ, he has death. And he withers. And eventually he's thrown into the fire and burned. Now we know that Jesus is not giving us a horticultural lesson here. So we know that when he speaks of being thrown into the fire and burned, he has an eternal perspective in mind. He's saying that those who do not abide in me do not share in my life, do not share in my vitality, do not bear fruit, they wither, they die, and ultimately they're punished. And so it's a life and, and death reality that Jesus is painting here. Again, there's, there's no middle ground. You're either in Christ and you share in his life or, or you're separated from Christ and you have only death. You wither and you die and you're burned. And so just in explicit ways and with stark contrast, Jesus is communicating to his followers, you must abide in me for life, for eternity. Don't separate yourselves from me. Now keep in mind how important these words are going to be when they see their master hanging on a cross and when they think that everything is lost. They must abide. They must remain in Christ to have life. In verses 7 through 8, Jesus rounds out the illustration with two promises. Verse 7, he says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. That's where it gets really rhythmic and fun to say. 
You can try that later at home. But when Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, that's, that's not an addition, right? It's not like he's adding something different. Like this whole time he's saying, you need to abide in me. Oh, 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 and my words need to abide in you. Because it becomes very difficult to, uh, to separate the incarnate word from his spoken word, right? Jesus is the living, breathing word of God. And so everything he speaks is the living, breathing word of God. And you can't separate these two things, right? So when Jesus says, if I, if I abide in you and my words abide in you, he's just further emphasizing the necessity of abiding in him and his teaching as the incarnate word. And what does he say? He says, if I abide in you and my words abide in you, what? Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Again, this isn't the first time Jesus has brought this up as well. In chapter 14, Jesus speaks of asking in my name and I'll give you whatever you want. And so this connection of if Christ is in us and his word is in us, we know that our prayers before the Father will be answered. It's not a guessing game. And how do we know they'll be answered? Because we know if Christ is abiding in us and his word's abiding in us, what we ask will be in accordance with him and with his word. And the Father delights in that. And so the promise of answered prayers, and secondly, the promise of glorifying the Father. Look at verse 10. If you keep my, I'm sorry, look at verse 8. I apologize. By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So Jesus makes it clear that if you abide in him, if his followers abide in him and bear fruit, the Father is glorified in their lives. And so they have the promise of answered prayers and they have the promise of glorifying the Father in their lives. So it's clear by the end of these eight verses that abiding in Jesus is an absolute necessity for the disciples if they hope to be fruit-bearing followers of Christ who bring glory to God. Now the question is, how do you do that? How do you abide in Christ, right? It's one thing to say, you must do this, and it's another thing to say, how? Right? I'm like the least handy person in the whole entire world. And, and it's just, it's a fault of mine. I've got many good things about me, many. I have a list of them. I'll show them to you later. But one bad thing is I am like the least handy dude in the world. And I think sometimes my wife hates that. She doesn't hate that. She's not here. She hates it. She hates it about me. Um, she wants me to be more handy, right? But I'm just, I am horrible at it. So it's like if you came to me and said, hey, Dan, you need to fix the drain or you need to fix the shower, I would just sit there. <laughs> my, my tool kit is so embarrassing. It's from Ikea. It's like I have this little Ikea box of tools with like a, almost like a toy hammer and a, a screwdriver, a baby wrench, and some pliers. That's all I got. So I would stand there with my Ikea tools, and I would stare at whatever I have to fix and probably begin crying. That's probably what I would just start doing. Or maybe just hit it with a hammer or throw my screwdriver at it. Like, I, I'm not handy, right? So you could tell me to do something all you want to, but unless you sit down with me and say, look, this is how we do it, I'm lost, right? Now, some of you are very handy people. Like, you figure stuff out. But there's, there's other ways where you're not as cool as you think you are, right? So we need to be taught. We need to be instructed on how to do what it is we're called to do. And praise God that Jesus loves us so much that he doesn't just drop these expectations on us and then never tell us how to fulfill them. He loves us so desperately that he communicates to us how we are to abide in him. And I think that's exactly what Jesus is doing in verses 9 through 11. As we come to verses 9 through 11, Jesus kind of leaves aside the illustration of the vine and the branches, and there's a reason for it. And the reason is, is that the illustration of the vine and the branches is incapable of communicating the deep love that Christ has for his followers. The vine and the branches, it satisfies and it's sufficient to communicate the necessity of remaining in Christ. We can picture that, but you know what? We don't know, and, and certainly we don't believe that the vine loves the branches. Right? When we, look at it, when we look at a grapevine or whatever, we don't assume that there's a love connection between these two that's holding them together. And so Jesus pushes aside this illustration of the vine and the branches because he needs to communicate the deeper reality that's at work here, and it's his love for his followers. Look at what he says in verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now let's stop there for just a moment. Because sometimes we have a tendency to read through things so quickly that we don't drink in the depth of what Jesus is saying. What has he just said to these men? He says, as the Father loves me. Think of the baptism of Jesus. Behold my son with whom I am well 
pleased. The Father in heaven looks at his Son and he says, This is my Son in whom I take the greatest delight and pleasure. Jonathan Edwards is a theologian who's dead. Actually, he's not. He's alive. He's in heaven with the Lord. But one of the trickiest things for us to think of oftentimes is the, the concept of the Trinity. And we've, we've used all kinds of illustrations to try to parse this out, right? An egg or a clover, like all these different things. Jonathan Edwards, this is what he said about the Trinity. This is a, a dumbed-down version of it for myself, not for you. But Jonathan Edwards says that the Father has such a perfect, a perfect understanding of who he is, a perfect expression an understanding of his reality that it exists as another person who is the Son, who is the Word of God, the expression of God. So God's understanding, his self-perception is so real, so intense, and so deep that it exists as another person, the Son. And then the Father and Son share such a love relationship, such a joy and fellowship in one another that it exists as another person the Holy Spirit. And so when Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, he is talking about an infinite, eternal, deep, powerful, real love of which we would fail if we attempted to fully describe it. And Jesus looks at his followers and he says, as the Father has loved me, so I love you. What? Are you kidding me? The depth of the love that Christ has for his followers is inexpressible. As God, my Father loves me, so I love you. I can't imagine. I can't imagine. Because he speaks it to us as well. How that just washes over us. How it feels to be embraced and loved so desperately and so fully by the Son. And so what does Jesus say? He says, abide in my love. Right, the vine and the branches, it can't communicate this. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. And then he does something so crazy. He connects abiding, to his, abiding in his love to keeping his commandments. Look at verse 9 and 10. As a father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Now we need to think about this for just a moment here. So Jesus says, as a father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. And then he says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. So we have to ask ourselves, is Jesus saying to us that receiving his love is contingent upon keeping his commandments? Biblically, that's untenable. Paul destroys any thought or idea of that in all of his writings, Romans and Galatians. If righteousness could come through the law, then Christ died needlessly. We cannot earn the Father's love. So Christ is not telling us that receiving his love is contingent upon keeping his commands. So what is he saying to us? Well, he's saying very clearly that us keeping his commands is evidence of his love at work in us and evidence of our love for him. And it's, and it's here that I think John does this thing again where it becomes very reciprocal. I'm in you and you are in me. I love you and you love me. And so you keep my commandments as an expression of your love for me and you keep your comm- my commandments because I love you so much. What does John say later in First John? He says, this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he first loved us. And so God is the initiator. God is the one who showers his love upon us. And as he showers his love upon us, our response is to love him back. And the evidence of our love back to the Father is walking in obedience to the commands of Christ. So how does the Father see our love at work? He sees it at work in our obedience to the Son. And why are we obedient to the Son? Because the Son loves us so much. And so as the love of the Son pours into us, it pours out of us in obedience to Him. And it's this insanely reciprocal reality that we're not earning the love of the Son, but the Son loves us so desperately and so powerfully that it moves us to walk in obedience to Him as an expression of our love for Him. And so we don't earn His love, but we display His love 
and our obedience. And again, Jesus, as beautiful as he is, he never calls us to something that he himself has not already done because look what he says, just as I remain in my Father's love by keeping his commandments. And so we ask ourselves, how do we abide in Christ? And I think the answer Jesus gives us in these verses is that we abide in Christ by faithfully walking in obedience to the word of Christ because of the love of Christ that has been poured out in us as an expression of our love towards him. How do we abide in Christ? We abide in Christ by faithfully walking in obedience to the word of Christ because of the love of Christ that has been poured into us as an expression of our love for Christ. John paints love as the motivator of all that the Father does. What's the best-known memory verse in the whole entire Bible? Guys, I'm honestly shy. You know, in the South, we, they talk a lot more. So in the South, when a pastor asks them, somebody answers. Thank you so much. Minnesota Nice needs to step outside, buddy. We got to talk, all right? John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his son. The love of the Father is the motivator of giving his son. And the love that the Father has for the son is the love that the son has for his followers. And that love drives us to move to action just as it drove the Father to move to action. So how do we abide in Christ? We abide in Christ by obeying Christ. And how do we obey Christ? We obey Christ because he has loved us in a way that is inexpressible. And that love drives us and moves us to obey him as an expression of our love for him. So we've seen the necessity of abiding in Christ. We've seen how we abide in Christ. And then lastly, we need to ask ourselves, do we have any hope of abiding in Christ? Because the truth is that you and I are broken people. These disciples that Jesus is speaking to are broken people. Just two chapters ago, Jesus looked at Peter and said, you're going to deny me. Like, you say you'll go with me to death, but guess what? You're going to punk out real quick. Some little schoolgirl is going to ask you if you know me, and you're going to curse and say, how do you not know that guy? And every other disciple is going to flee. And so what hope do we have? What hope do they have as broken sinners of abiding in Jesus? What hope do they have? What hope do we have of obeying Christ? Is there any hope? And praise God, I think there is hope. So in verses 12 through 16, Jesus continues that idea of his love for them. And it's expressed in a, in a, in a shift in relationship. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what the master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all that I've heard from the Father, I've made known to you. So there's this shift that Jesus says that's taken place. You're not servants who obey out of a necessity to obey. You're friends who obey out of a relationship with me. That's what drives you and motivates you. And in fact, I skipped over this, and I shouldn't have skipped over this to my fault. But in verse 11, Jesus says that all of this is for your joy. So obeying Christ isn't an oppressive reality. It's a joyful reality. In fact, the only way to experience full joy is to walk in obedience to Jesus Christ. So Jesus isn't laying some burden on them, but rather he is actually giving them the most joyful thing he could give them, which is obedience to him because of his love for them. And so he expresses it in this change in relationship that takes place. And then we have verse 16, right, which kind of falls like a bomb on the situation. Because we can imagine at this point, the disciples have gotten feeling pretty good, right? Like already you're clean, sweet, we're clean, all right? That's working out well, all right? Abide in Jesus, now we're friends. Like this is dope, Jesus is telling us, he's like, you know, you're not servants, you're friends, and because you're friends, because I, I tell you everything, my father told me and I tell it to you, and they're like, we've got, we got a pretty cool spot here. Like, you know, like in comparison to Judas, that guy that left us two chapters ago, like we're sitting pretty right now, right? And then Jesus comes in, and, and, and what he says in, in verse 16, it, it both grounds the disciples, right? It yanks them back down, and it casts the relationship in the appropriate pattern, but it also, I think, serves to greatly encourage the disciples. 
So he says in verse 16, he says, you did not choose me. You didn't choose me. I chose you. And I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So first, this grounds the disciples, right? Here they are on cloud nine. Man, we made the right decision, didn't we? Like Matthew's like, he's thinking back to when he was sitting in that tax booth. He had all the Roman money in front of him. Jesus showed up and said, follow me. And Matthew's like, I made the right decision. That was a good decision on my part, right? And James and John are like, hey, remember that time we were in the boat with dad and we we're fixing the nets and then Jesus showed up. Remember those years ago when he showed up on the boat or on the shore and he told us to follow him and we left dad in our nets and everything and followed him? We made a great decision. That was wise on our part. Right? And, and, then, and then Peter's thinking about the time that he left his boat, and, fought, and all the disciples are kind of maybe going back in their mind, like, we, we did good. Like, when he told us to come, we chose to follow him, and that was a legit decision on our part. And Jesus crushes that. He crushes it under the weight of his sovereign greatness and glory. And he says, you didn't choose me. Brothers, don't get it confused. I chose you, and I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. You are who you are because of what I have done on your behalf and will do on your behalf. And so it grounds the disciples and it reframes their relationship in the right sphere. Christ called and chose them. Christ appointed them. But at the same time, it speaks of such great hope because if Christ is the one that called them and Christ is the one that chose them and Christ is the one that appointed them, Jesus doesn't fail. You and I will fail and we will do it daily. We will fail all the time. We will fail in our marriages. We will fail in our relationships. We will fail as parents. We will fail as friends. We will fail as pastors. We will fail as missionaries. We will fail at our job. We will fail all the time. But Christ will never fail. Jesus doesn't screw up. He is the true vine. He is the one who succeeds. He is the one who brings forth good fruit. And when he appoints somebody to be his fruit, they are his fruit. Jesus is the greatest. Jesus is supreme. Jesus is sovereign and he doesn't mess up and praise God that he doesn't. And so the disciples are filled with such hope because if they are trying to abide in Jesus in their own strength, they will fail. But praise God, they don't abide in Jesus in their own strength. Just the previous chapter, Jesus said what? I'm sending a helper. I will not leave you as orphans. I'm sending a helper. And the Holy Spirit will come mediating the presence of God the Father and God the Son in his followers. And they will abide. And they will bear fruit, and their fruit will remain. And how do we know? How do we know? What are we doing here? What are we doing here? We are living, breathing expressions of the disciples' faithfulness to abide in Jesus Christ. Have you thought of that? Do you think of that when we come here and gather this morning, that we are here because these guys who sat and listened to Jesus did what he told them to do? They abided in Christ. They proclaimed the gospel message. It spread to all the world. And here we are some 2,000 years later worshiping the same Lord and Savior because they abided in Jesus. And did they abide in Jesus because of their own strength? No. They abided in Christ because of his strength, because of his sovereign purposes and his sovereign plan. So is there hope of abiding in Christ? Yes, there is hope of abiding in Christ. Christ because Christ is the one who causes his fruit to abide. How awesome is that? If that doesn't send a tinge up your spine, I, I don't know what will. How great and awesome is the Lord that we serve. How wonderful is Christ Jesus, the one who has poured his love into his people, has called them to himself and strengthens them to abide in him and to bring forth fruit. And so now we need to think, just in closing, oh, I totally, I've been forgetting a lot. Peter, you're supposed to be reminding me of these things. Uh, it'll come up later. <laughs> we need to think about, oh, no, we need to think about this. 
Sorry. I should use a bigger iPad. I'm using a very tiny iPad. I should use a, a bigger one. But the fact that Jesus strengthens us to abide in him in no way, shape, or form removes from us the responsibility to continue to abide in Christ. Right? We might be tempted in our sinfulness to say, well, it's all on Jesus. It rests all on him. He'll do it. I don't have to do anything. But that's not the biblical picture. The biblical picture is that Christ is accomplishing his purpose and his plans, and that's all the more reason for us to labor to do what he has called us to do. I want us to read from 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. This is what Peter says. He says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Now listen to what Peter says after this. He says, God has done everything. Right? God has granted you everything you need for life and godliness. He has called you. He has given you his great promises. He has made you partakers of his divine nature. So Peter says, just sit back, chill, relax, and enjoy what God has done for you, right? No. For this reason, make every effort, every effort, to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Notice how Peter seamlessly, and without any hint of distraction or confusion, weaves together the sovereign purposes and plans of God and the call on you and I to make every effort to make our calling and election sure, to work out our salvation, as Paul says in Philippians 2, with fear and trembling, to, be, to put forth effort in our abiding in Christ. You just can't sit back at home and think it's going to happen. You have to put in the effort, the scriptures say. Understanding that Christ is the one strengthening you to do what he has called you to do. And so now I want us to think through some points of application this text this morning. Thinking first and foremost, we need to ask ourselves, are we abiding in Christ we can't walk away from the scriptures and not ask ourselves, am I living in obedience to the word? Are you abiding in Jesus? Are you walking in obedience to his word because of the great love which he has poured upon you? Maybe the question we need to ask even before that is, are you clean? Remember in verse 3, Jesus says, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. How can you abide in Christ if you are not first in Christ? So have you repented of your sins? Have you come to Christ as your Lord and Savior? If you have, are you then abiding in him? Are you making every effort, as Peter says, to be found in Jesus Christ, to grow in your knowledge and understanding of Jesus Christ, to sit under the teaching and the authority and the instruction of his word so as to abide in Christ? We need to put forth effort in order to be found in Christ. He is our life. He is our strength. He is our hope. And we really honestly need to honor the conditional aspect of this passage. Time and time again, Jesus says, if you abide in me, if you obey my commandments, there's an expectation, there's a responsibility on us to do these things. Jesus says throughout the Gospels, especially Matthew 24, he says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. And so we need to labor to abide in Christ. We need to read the word. We need to pray. We need to fellowship. We need to put forth effort, understanding that it's not our effort that accomplishes it, but Christ at work within us. So are you abiding in Christ? And lastly, if you are abiding in Christ, then I want to encourage you to welcome the pruning of the Father. 
Jesus said in the very beginning of this passage that the Father prunes the branches that bear fruit in order that they might bear more fruit. And let's be honest, pruning probably doesn't always feel that great. I took horticulture in high school because my senior year, I just wanted to take it completely and utterly easy. So I took auto tech and horticulture. And I'm pretty sure that in those two classes, I was one of just a very few number of people to actually graduate high school. And so in horticulture class, we learned how to take care of plants, right? And in order to prune a plant, what do you do? You cut the plant back, right? The plant's healthy, and you go after, you go after the healthy branches, and you cut the healthy branches back. You trim them. You do damage. You inflict damage to the healthy branch in order that the branch might bear more fruit. And so if we are abiding in Christ, then we need to welcome the pruning of the Father, which sometimes is not going to feel that great. It's like what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 12. It says, Consider him who endured for sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have earthly fathers, who disciplined us as we respected them, shall we not much more be subject to the discipline, I'm sorry, to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Brothers and sisters, let us abide in Christ. Let us welcome the pruning of the Father that we might bear more fruit and share His holiness. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you and thank you for your word. We praise you and thank you for your Son, Christ Jesus, who loves us so desperately. We thank you, Father, that He loves us with the love which you have loved Him. And Father, may that move in us and drive us to abide in Christ through obeying His word. Father, we do pray that you would prune us, that you would prepare us to bear more fruit, that we might bear fruit here in Fridley, that we might bear fruit here in Minnesota, that we might bear fruit in our jobs, in our homes, as we see people come to Christ, as we see people repent and give their life to Jesus as Lord and Savior. Father, would you use us towards that end, we pray. Father, would you continually strengthen us. Help us to fight against sin. Help us to walk in righteousness and holiness, we pray. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.